You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and if it's a little noisy, I complain. I'm, I'm, don't complain to me. I'm sorry, but the Velociraptors are just all over the place today and just misbehaving, and so just bear with us. Uh, and I'm so excited to have with me, as she is every single week, the one, the only, Christy Morris. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I just got here after prancing through a field of dead flaming locusts. Oh, this uh, so the worst. You know, they just ruin everything, put things on fire, create forest fires. It's awful. Yeah. You know, I don't even know if in that beginning I even said that this is the 602 Club. And I don't remember <laughs> if I even said my name is Matthew Rushing. And that's how obnoxious the Velociraptors have been today. Yes. Alpha, beta, blue. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it, guys. Come on. Well, we are excited. We are at the end of something, which is Jurassic World Dominion, kind of wrapping up the Jurassic series here. And so we're going to be talking about this latest film and the last one. Um, so but before we dive in to everything I think this movie has for us to cover, we want to say thank you to those that are listening. We really appreciate it. Um, and if you like the show, help spread the word, you know, share us with a friend share us on social media you know give us a star rating and a review on apple podcasts or spotify make sure you're subscribed so you'll get the shows as soon as they drop uh, you can also find us and follow us over on social media places like at the 602 club on twitter or we're on instagram at the 602 club tfm so please find us and follow us there interact with us Share with your friends. You can also find us on Facebook with the entire network at facebook.com slash trek.fm and the listeners only discussion group you can join and talk to listeners from all over the world about all of the different podcasts we're doing. Trek.fm is, of course, our website. And, of course, there's a contact section. Maybe you'd like to send us an email. Uh, yeah, people still do that sometimes. So, uh, And then last but not least, we want to say go over to patreon.com slash trek.fm and become part of our team. Make sure that all of these wonderful podcasts keep coming to you each and every week. Uh, it's very expensive to do all of this, and we can't do it without listeners just like you. Uh, every little bit helps, and so go to patreon.com slash trek.fm. So, Christy, before we even get to anything that's just on the outline. I just wanted to know kind of how you were feeling coming into this because, you know, for the majority of people like you and I, I feel like we've kind of grown up with the Jurassic series. So how are you feeling coming to the end? I was excited. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying initially when I saw the preview starting for this movie, I thought to myself, really, we're doing another one you know, with the Jurassic Park movies, although I grew up watching the first one um, not long after it came out, um, and then every subsequent uh, subsequent one after that, um, 
it starts to feel a little like they're just going for the cash grab possibly until, and I don't know if you felt the same way, Matt, until in this preview, I saw for the first time that they were bringing back the big three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I said, well, if it's got Jeff Goldblum and if it's got Alan and Ellie (laughs) coming back, now I'm interested because it clearly wasn't just another piece Mm -hmm. added to the pie. It was trying to honor what came before it and merge Mm -hmm. the two together. So what about you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I obviously uh, like you, I think I was, you know, it's like, I think the original film was, uh, I was probably 14 for it, you know? So it was just like right in the right wheelhouse. I grew up loving dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I wasn't nuts about uh, The Lost World. I, it's fine, but I don't think it's a great film. Three is pretty terrible, I think, as a movie. And then I wasn't really, like, re-engaged, I don't think, until Jurassic World came out. And, man, that movie took the world by storm and I think just really shocked people uh, and kind of, I think, reignited people's love for the series and being excited, you know, mm-hmm. I thought that was a great movie. I enjoyed Fallen Kingdom. And so I was excited to come into this. And I, I think my excitement and was in part with with what, you know, you just said, which is this seemed like a movie where the original three cast members were going to be big parts of this film and kind of like bringing everything full circle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, yeah, that was 100% exciting. So I, coming into the movie, though, and coming to an end, I heard a lot of people complaining about this uh, coming out of the movie, which is they were expecting this movie to be more about kind of like humans and the dinosaurs living together and all of that. And I was uh, wondering before we even get to w- what Colin Trevorrow has to say on the subject, how how do you feel about that? Is that what you expected in this movie, or did you have really any expectations other than you know the fact that you knew that the big three were going to be in this with our cast members from the Jurassic World series? Uh, you know, where were you in that, and and did that bother you that that? that that's not kind of where this movie is going. So I really didn't fixate on that when I saw the preview. I was more just excited that they were going to have the big three back and that they're putting them in in the same movie together with Owen and Claire. Um, So I wasn't really focused on that, but I also like that they didn't go that direction of having dinosaurs and humans regularly coexisting because I don't see how that would actually be possible anyway. Mm-hmm. If you're really looking at realistically how that would work. Sure. They're wild. They've got way more um, different sizes and shapes and claws and things. Mm-hmm. And um, they're going to be all over the place. And humans mm-hmm. have to have some kind of order that is never going to work. Right. Well, and I I am right there with you because that's not what I expected at all either. One, there are not that many dinosaurs, right. you know, coming from the, the two islands we've seen, mm-hmm. Isla Nubar and, and Sorna. 
there just aren't that many dinosaurs that they've created, right? And, you know, Trevorrow said that really what he was going for was this kind of realism of like, you know, dinosaurs wouldn't be everywhere all the time, you know, uh, and that they would be kind of rare in the sense of the same way, you know, if you go to places where tigers exist, he uses this as an example, you don't just see them walking down the street much. We know there right. are tigers there, but it's it's very rare that you would see one just kind of like walking down the street, right? Yeah, um, they would be so in their habitats. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the idea of kind of keeping our relationship with these wild animals much more grounded and that in some ways too, um, you know, this would be more of the idea of like, yeah, a dinosaur might you know, run out into the street in a foggy night, you know, uh, on a back road or, you know, they might invade your ca- campground. Um, this, uh, and that like dinosaurs in the real world would be more like us, like when we think of like bears or sharks, mm-hmm. then, you know, we watch out for them, but it's not like a common occurrence. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought all of that made much more sense. Um, and then too, I I thought with his his thought process was you know in the in Jurassic World the very first one Claire says no one's impressed by a dinosaur anymore, and the idea that you know with them being loose in the real world you did have the opportunity to run into one possibly um, that that would be proven false like people would still be in awe of seeing a creature like that. If they existed today, if they happened to run into one, you know, or in um, terror. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, like the prologue for the movie that got released um, had the T-Rex, you know, stomping through a drive in movie theater, uh, you know. So if that happened, obviously, it'd be terrifying. Uh, and so which apparently there's. There's footage like that where it was meant to be a part of the original film and they cut it out for time and everything. But I'd love to see the director's cut basically of like with all of that. I think that would be really fun to see mm-hmm. back in the movie because that's a fun scene anyway. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I personally for myself, I, I'm with you in the sense I didn't have expectations going in as to that. Um, and I think this movie did feel more like almost a planet earth type of thing you know which he watched for inspiration of seeing the animals in their habitat you know the the fact that they don't really run across human beings all the time you know like it's not like you're walking out the door and dinosaurs are there Mm -hmm. Uh, again part of that is that there are so few of them um and even though they've been spread across the world uh and there are breeding you know, places with them now, it's much more akin to um, the exotic animal, you know, underground that we have even now with things like tigers and lions and, you know, deadly snakes and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, all again, all of that stuff happens now with, with you know, wild animals and you know (laughs) during the pandemic we all watched uh you know what happened with joe exotic and his group um right right yeah we we all became (laughs) much more aware uh with the the tiger king uh but it's still very rare in comparison you know so 
yeah, I, I, I thought that this really worked for the movie quite well. Uh, and so, yeah, well, I was just kind of surprised to see people really frustrated that that was not, I don't know, I just never expected that. So maybe I'm just on a whole other level, which, I, you know, I'm a little crazy, so. <laughs> well, it, and I think you could play it both ways. I mean, I think there are people that are going to be for that style of having them living amongst us and then people that, you know, feel like we do that having it more grounded and realistic to what like endangered species are like for mm-hmm. us currently right. is better. Um, yeah. I like that more grounded approach and it, you know, obviously you do too. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's an interesting way of looking at it that we're not used to um, sure. with dinosaur movies. Mm-hmm. Um, And apparently was more akin to what Crichton wrote in the books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I I like that you say that because um, I was talking with a friend of mine uh, behind the scenes, just our personal text messaging and stuff. Mm -hmm. And with what this movie, and we're going to talk about it in just a second, I I think it has a lot to say. Um, it, It felt very much in line with where Crichton went with the very first novel. Like the, the, if you've read Jurassic Park, the book is very much about the way uh, science is being used and all of these type of things. And I mean, even the betrayal of characters, um, you know, in the original novel, Hammond is not a good guy mm-hmm. uh, at all. Um, he is an egotistical maniac who is, you know, hell bent on making money with dinosaurs. Uh, you know, he dies. Spoiler alert at the end of that movie, too. It's but he's and so you're happy to see him. Movie. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you're happy to see him go in the book because things are much more serious. And um, the thought process behind it is is much more, I think, where this movie goes, where, again, I think this movie, as I mentioned, has a lot to say. And it seemed to be very topical and hitting on a lot of things that we've seen over, I would say, the last five years. Um, and some of them even even closer than that. But I was really interested. One, this movie kind of, I thought, touched down on the idea of the effect of lockdowns on kids. Um, and Maisie is really struggling with that because, and, and look, Owen and Claire have perfect legitimate reasons for wanting to keep her, you know, basically locked down Um, because she is in terrible danger and they're proven right, obviously, um, with what happens to her in this film. But the effect on her is detrimental. You know, she only has them to talk to. She doesn't have interaction with any kids her age. She doesn't have any experiences outside of the world that she's had where she's been very cloistered from, you know, being in her grandfather's house uh, which we saw in Fallen Kingdom, to now just kind of, you know, she lives out in the woods with Owen and Claire, and they love her. They treat her like she's their own kid. But at the same time, the psychological effects on this poor child are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes very much to what we've seen in our own world, which, yeah, you lock kids up for a year and that ha- they can't do anything and have no interaction with the outside world. It's not good for them. Exactly. No, I think you're a hundred percent right that that's a reference to that, um, and that it does prove. Like, I mean, I actually remember learning in sociology class 
that that is a vital thing for humanity to our um, development, um, also to our ability to know social norms um, and to, you know, be able to function as members of society at large as you get older. And I mean, I have a friend whose child has speech delays because he was having to do virtual school for so long. Um, and like you said, you know, clearly in this situation as well, there was a, a needed reason for that for a time, but then also there has to be some kind of balance and that Maisie was saying to them, I need something more. And they even acknowledged to each other, we've got to figure out a solution because otherwise she might go a lot further than the bridge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And, uh, and, and it was just, it's one of those things where it's like, it's not a, a massive thing, but it's just, it's a point in which the movie is, is I think pointedly saying something about our experiences, you know, over the last few years to which I think the way this movie is a repudiation of much of the scientific community, especially over the last few years is um, I don't think it's subtle. You know, um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, what's interesting, Grant, uh, Alan Grant says that science is about the quest for the truth. And yet I think what this movie shows and what much of the Jurassic Park series from the beginning, from the very first, from the book, science is here about people wanting and being used for the idea of more money and more control. Um, I mean, gosh, I mean, legitimately, what do we have here? We have a lab accident that has effects on the entire world. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the locusts? I don't. Yeah, yeah. That. And I mean, even the dinosaurs themselves, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, these, especially the ones that had been uh, genetically altered and specifically were being made for being weapons and stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. this is. If that's not topical, the idea of this type of thing and the, and science being misused in this way, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the fact that again, Crichton was talking about this in the original Jurassic Park novel, and I think this movie, even maybe even more so than the original Jurassic Park, um, but with Spielberg, I think this movie is really hitting hard on that subject of like the way science can be misused um, because of people's desire for money and more power. Well, and then also it even reminds me of just the whole story of how something can get away from you, how it's like Frankenstein's yes. monster yep. where they mm-hmm. had good intentions, except then they get into playing God, even if you don't believe in God, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, that you are messing with things that you don't understand and it leads to catastrophic results. Um, and, and I do think you see that over and over in, in this movie, like you're mentioning, and you know, showing that things like cloning, um, what results it could have, for example, on a human being where she's going, I don't mm-hmm. even know who yeah. I am. Yeah. You know, yep. that whole question that a kid who is adopted might have about what their biological parents are like she's going through on a whole nother level of do i even have a mother or what i was i just from a petri dish yeah no i i think a hundred percent i mean those are the type of questions that get raised and and just i think that the idea 
the scientific community specifically does kind of play into um, very much, I think, one of the themes of the film, which is the responsibility for our actions, the intended and the unintended consequences of those, right? Mm -hmm. And how we deal with that. Um, Because absolutely, like you said, uh, you know, one of the, the big things here is that we see this idea of of looking for more control, you know, um, and using genetic resources for that with the locusts and the unintended consequences that have happened with that, which could cause catastrophic meltdown of the food supply, which is a repudiation in many ways of, I, I think, the the big tech um, and the scientific community together, you know, the way in which, you know, these two things are working together to look for more control over our lives mm-hmm. and the way that they use the enchantment that we have with things that they create to help us overlook their real motives. It's this game of smoke and mirrors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where, they're like, pay it no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, right, pay yeah. no attention to the dinosaur behind the curtain. Uh, and and I the way all of these themes I think play together here in the film is really really smart. Um, I mean, it Dotson is literally dressed like Tim Cook from Apple, basically. Uh, so it's kind of hard mm-hmm. not to see what Trevorrow is going for here. But I think what he's pointing at are things that are super dangerous because there are people who are previously in big tech that are longing to have more control over our food supply. Um, you know, and you can, you could find it in the news. Um, you know, previous Microsoft owners, you know, they, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're big on this stuff. It's kind of scary. Um, and so all of these things together, I, I think are actually pretty terrifying. Yeah. Well, I, and it, it reminds me too of, um, the whole premise of movies like iRobot where mm-hmm. you yeah. are trained to start bringing more and more advanced technology into everyone's home and then it gets used against you. Um, they're doing the same kind of thing here where they're showing that, oh, bias and seed is going to be better for your crops, um, except for then they are killing off everything that's not yeah. bias and yeah. seed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you don't even absolutely. have a choice anymore. That's the only thing available. Exactly. And and it, again, what a, it's that kind of, they're using our enchantment with things to, to be able to push an agenda, right? Until suddenly it's too late. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and they're using crises for their benefit, right? Like, let no crisis go on unused, um, is the saying that's it, that's famous, um, and or it's close to that. It's a paraphrase, but you know, Dotson is is talking about the idea of using crises for problems they've created, quote unquote problems they created, so that they'll have more control over the food supply. So that basically they'll have more control. Like yeah. this whole thing is about people in power looking to increase their own power mm-hmm. uh, and the control that they have over the systems. Um, and so to me, that that's another, I, I think, 
I think if you've been paying attention over the last few years, these are the things that we've seen happen. Uh, yeah. And it's it's ridiculously and utterly terrifying. And it's scarier than the dinosaurs, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's the thing I think that this movie kind of shows is that mankind has propensity to to do things that are more terrifying than a T-Rex rampaging. It, really. With the amount of evil that we can perpetuate because we're desirous of basically being in control of things mm-hmm. to a godlike level. At least we're trying. And that's that I think the whole Jurassic series has been about from the start. Oh, definitely. I mean, it it's about the it, all of these things combined together. You know, it's about the the want for control, um, coupled with the good intentions of some people that want to just advance our knowledge. Um, and use the science for good, then there's the people that want to use it for evil um, and for more and more control. And, you know, it's amazing when you think about it that we haven't completely annihilated ourselves yet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I think that is something that is important here to realize is that Charlotte Lockwood... That's exactly what she was trying to do, right? She was the one scientist there at InGen working, you know, alongside of everybody who's, you know, doing this genetic research with to create dinosaurs. What What is she doing with it? She's trying to solve problems like medical issues and, you know, like um, genetic diseases. diseases. Exactly. Those type of things like that's her desire is to use this power not to just make more money, but to actually benefit the world, you know, on on that type of level. Uh, and, and of course, you know, she succeeds in, in doing so. And so I, I think that's the thing I love about the film is that it does show that there are people that are looking like a grant, you know, or. Uh, a Charlotte. They're looking for the truth in science, right? And the way that that can teach us about ourselves and help us. But I, I think the beauty of the film and the and the disappointment in the film in the sense that it shows that there's more people who are more interested in using that for control or money mm-hmm. than than those things. And that's that's the thing that I think is is so sad. And that asks a larger question then, which is what's the best way to make a change? And that's something that I thought was really interesting about the movie because what we what do we do in the face of, of something that's wrong or even evil? I mean, is it okay to just stand by and do nothing, you know, or and then if we're going to do something, how do we do that? Um, because I was really interested about you know, the movie kind of shows like the idea of like civil disobedience type of thing or working within the system or, you know, and that different people are trying different things. And there isn't necessarily a, a truly clear cut answer as to what the best way is, but it is clear that people are very interested in in doing something rather than nothing. Mm-hmm. But it is important what that something is, too. 
Yeah, I think that they definitely show you, especially through the characters of Ramsey that works for Biosyn um, and betrays Dodgson, um, as well as with Kayla, that if you see something that you know is wrong and do nothing, you're allowing it to happen. And I'm so glad that they had Kayla then become a bigger character in the movie and get to come back and tell Owen, I did see your daughter before at the airport Mm -hmm. and I looked the other way. But then when I came across her picture again, I realized doing nothing wasn't enough. Right. And that was a beautiful moment because you're seeing that like it struck her heart that it made her realize the kind of Mm -hmm. person she really is and that it actually makes her change her ways moving forward because she's like, I realized I can't be one of those people that just turns the other way and goes about my own selfish needs. I know. And it it was leading me to think of too, you know, obviously the beginning of the film where uh, Franklin is talking to Claire and Zia where he's saying, and both he and Zia are telling, we can't keep doing this. This isn't really helping. We're not actually, I mean, we're helping, but it's, it's not enough. And it's, it's, it's not the way we should be helping. Right. right. You know, this, this rating of these places and everything. Yeah. We are doing some good, but it's not really doing the most amount of good we could. And I just, the, the question there, I think is just so valid because we are, all living in a world where we see wrongs happening and the question because becomes how do we affect the best change right Mm -hmm. and i think that that's a, a question that the movie it definitely lays before us i think it shows different ways to make that happen but i i i i come to the fact that a lot of these people in the best ways to make this happen are on the the legal level the the and and I mean legal in all ways you know not raiding places and 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 all those type of things but I mean mm-hmm. at the very end of the movie what what are Malcolm and Ellie and Alan doing along with Ramsey you know they're going to congress to present their findings and then working to make a lasting change um, on a national level here, and then of course the global level, of course, where the you know the the UN marks that as a sanctuary, you mm-hmm. know, and and so like I, I just I think that's really really neat that this movie is asking really big questions like that, and then the last one I I come to and I just really loved like. For Trevorrow, he said that this movie to him is really about an allegory for us and nature, but also us and us. Like, we as people, mm-hmm. we have to find a way to coexist with one another if we want to survive and thrive. And I think the beauty of this is it really kind of puts, like, look, dinosaurs and man living together, if, 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 if they could find a way to do it, the whole point of the film is to say, look, we need to learn to live together on all sides of the aisle, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if if the most 
inexplicable things can learn to live together, you know, in the allegory of this film, then we should be able to find a way to do that as well. And I I was really moved by that as a theme in the movie because we are at this kind of crossroads where it feels like people don't want that, you mm-hmm. know? Like they feel like that's impossible. But it has to be, or we're going to end up completely destroying ourselves. And looking at what we still have in common, you know, what the the bigger issues are than just whatever quabbles we have with each other, you know, that there are general things that we all want and need um, and that we share that. You know, that we all need to eat, that we all deserve to be able to have a decent place mm-hmm. to live. Um, you know, these are all things that we have in common that we need to focus on so that we can then be able to coexist together. I, I think I really like, you know, the way you put that, like, you know, we, and and I think even the way the movie, you know, shows it is is like, you know, the velociraptors right with Mm -hmm. blue and beta we have this uh, thing we have this picture there where we can see how these characters aren't that different in the sense like they're just trying to protect their families right Mm -hmm. you know like there's that correlation like you said that that beauty of the thing that actually makes us more similar than not Mm -hmm. it's still a mother and her baby Mm -hmm. yep exactly And it's the same thing that we then have to do with one another. Mm -hmm. I I love that, Christy. I think that's it's a beautifully, beautifully put. Um, So I did want to add while we're on that really quick, um, just a moment about the dinosaurs themselves. Oh, Um, sure. Yeah, of course. There were some things in this movie that they actually corrected that came from the paleontologists that they worked with. Um, that I thought were interesting. Um, and then, you know, my husband, the dinosaur lover also reminded me of um, that. Um, well, well, one thing they didn't correct that apparently um, was driving him crazy was they kept calling it Giganotosaurus. Um, and it's actually pronounced in the paleontological community, Giganotosaurus. So that was a little annoying. But for those of us that don't know that's the difference. It didn't really bother me. Um, but they did actually go back. And I don't know if you remember from Jurassic Park 3, they had mm-hmm. killed off the T-Rex saying that there was a um, Spinosaurus was the bigger predator. Um, mm-hmm. And there was actually a lot of fan contention about that, that that's, that wouldn't have been the case. So in this movie, in that final fight between the Giganotosaurus, the T-Rex, and the other dinosaur, I don't remember its name, um, they actually then have the T-Rex wake back up. Yeah. Uh, I like that, um, that they they brought that back and fixed it um, and made some fans happy. Um, And then the only other thing I wanted to share was um, that the uh, Dilophosaurus was the dinosaur that had the neck frill Mm-hmm. I yep. love that they brought that back from the very first Jurassic yeah. Park. Yeah, that was great. 
Um, but apparently Crichton made up the fact that those could spit venom and had a neck frill at all. Apparently they did not in actual historical evidence have either of those bodily features. Yeah, that's fine with me. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah, it's more fun. I, yeah, I wanted to ask you it cause obviously we talked about this, um, and you know, it, it being a big deal, them bringing the bat, the, the big three back. And so how do you feel then that they did with, with Ellie and Ian and Alan being obviously such a huge part of this film and the storylines then to kind of bring this to a close. I was so happy. First of all, I think that everyone has been waiting since the very first Jurassic Park movie for Ellie and Alan to be able to be a couple. Mm -hmm. It did not make sense that they broke them up before and had her go off and marry someone else and have kids with them because these two characters were so similar. And you could see from the very beginning of the whole series that they had this connection and then had shared trauma because of everything they went through here Mm -hmm. with the park. Um, So now to finally bring it full circle, like you were saying, and have them back in the movie and finally be able to be together. It's like what they and the audience have both been waiting for since the very first movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, you know, I think everyone absolutely loves the character of Alan it's like he is the mainstay of Jurassic Park. Um, you know, there's even that recognizable musical theme that plays whenever he comes on screen. Mm-hmm. That is the Jurassic Park theme. You know, it, it, he's like the Indiana Jones of this series. <laughs> I mean, he's yeah. even got the hat. Yes. So, yeah, seeing them back was amazing i'm glad they got them together and then also i'm I'm a huge fan of jeff goldblum anyway so um but his character of ian i like that he gets some redemption you know although they Mm -hmm. still kind of make him out to be a little bit of a quack who's out there preaching all of this pseudoscience um he he is actually at heart a good guy all the things you touched on i think are the things that make this work one uh, i mean the way these characters are used in this movie is a hundred times better than anything we got in the sequels for Star Wars. Um, I think this makes these characters feel important to the series. And the fact that, you know, for them, this is kind of about, they're such big drivers of the story. I mean, with Ellie um, specifically, and, you know, obviously the fact that, you know, her and Ian uh, have been working on this together, you know, uh, with the whole Biasin angle and, uh, you know, and then bringing Alan in and, and making him a part of this. And, and, you know, in some ways, I think he gets to live his dream, you know, by coming kind of face to face with a raptor in the way he does. Um, you know, I think that's that's awesome. Uh, Did you like the raptor jokes about, is that a dinosaur strapped to your shoulder? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought all that was, was great. Um, you know, I, I think I just if you're going to bring characters back like this, you have to make them matter to the story. And I think they absolutely made them matter to the story so that it didn't feel like, oh, that could have just been anybody here. You know, the the fact that they that these three characters would have such a vested interest in all of this, especially since, you know, they are in many ways, even though they don't know it connected to the villain of the story 
Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, they are uh, intricately connected to that character and in ways that I don't even know if they're necessarily aware of, right? Um, and so all the way back to the original Jurassic Park. So, and yeah, I'm with you. You know, having Alan and Ellie finally be able to come together as a couple the way that they always should have been, I think makes fans really happy, you know? And um, and her and Alan and Ian going to the Senate to finish this once and for all. I mean, it, it, again, there's this redemption arc for them in that sense that they get they get to finish what they started, mm-hmm. um, and to put things right finally after all of this time. So, I mean, I a hundred percent agree with you, and uh, I think I couldn't have been happier that they were brought back the way they were, and that I think it plays out beautifully in the film. Um, so I'm just glad I didn't have to deal with, you know, massive locusts cause that was disgusting. So, <laughs> but it was such an awesome scene having Ellie and Claire have to go and reset the switch manually, you know, and, and go get through all of the burning locusts and then yeah. waking up yeah. more of them. Oh, it was so funny. Yeah, I mean, I I think that was the fun thing is that they also found great ways to interact the characters from the two casts, you know, and bring and I thought that was and you got this feeling almost like, you know, that by bringing the two generations together that they will be together for the rest of their lives. Right. You know, um, that they will be friends, that they Mm -hmm. will get together and hang out. You know, they've had this experience that has bonded them you know and so i love that and i'm really glad that we continued and i think we kind of found a way to bring again full circle owen and claire and Maisie's stories that you know we're able to find closure for those stories and i I specifically you know when I think of, of Claire and the fact that what Ellie says to her, where she says, you know, we hold on to regret and we stay in the past. What matters is what we do now. And I think for Owen and Claire, um, that that's kind of part of their story here. Like they have to let go of what happened and they have, they, they need to find a way to enact a change because, they do kind of they they do feel guilty for their involvement in Jurassic Park Claire mostly mm-hmm. you know and so i think i loved that and i also loved that we just we didn't have that thing where oh will are they or aren't they a, no owen and claire are a couple now mm-hmm. like they're not going anywhere they're there together and and they love Maisie like their daughter and she is I mean, she even calls them like at the end of the movie, they're her parents, you know, the, these, these are her parents, you know, and, and she can see the way in which they love her and want to protect her, even if it's frustrating for her sometimes. So all three of them, I thought they did a great job of, of bringing back, um, and then utilizing well, I thought for the story. Yeah. For me, the biggest part of that whole piece of their story was, showing also for people that have been adopted or fostered that people out there can love you 
just like you are their own biological child and don't have mm-hmm. to have any blood relation to you whatsoever. Um, and that it can be mutual. Um, that, you know, she's now learned her own origin story, Maisie has, and has accepted the fact that she does have a biological mother, but that's not who's been raising her now. And that she does have two great people to look up to who are taking good care of her. Um, so I almost cried in that scene where um, I think the nurse says to her, um, I'm just going to get you patched up and then I'll send you home to your folks. And it shows Claire and Owen. I was like, Oh, they're her folks. Yeah. I agree with you there. And, and I think what I also really enjoyed is the fact that, you know, the storyline with Maisie and her being a clone uh, of her mother mm-hmm. uh, or I mean really just a clone of Charlotte is not really her mother <laughs> for mm. really in, in the in that sense that w- what we would know but was really interesting um, and again I think what was beautiful about it is how it ties into all the thematic elements you know of of the way in which we use science and, and what we're doing with it and, and all of those things but it also, uh, yeah, the her quest to find out who she is and her 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 desire to understand who she is as a person um, mm-hmm. is she just the same person or is she different? And and I think, you know, the beauty of this is we've all kind of experienced this as Star Wars fans and the idea of the clones and how they yep. are all different because of their experiences and who they interact with as a Jedi and all of those kind of things, and so. Um, I, I love that she gets to realize that, yeah, she is her own person. I mean, what Claire says to her is, is so cheesy, but it's so true. You know, you're the only you who's ever existed, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. She might be genetically almost the same person, almost the same, like a copy, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of Charlotte, but she's not even genetically the same anymore right because of the alterations that you know charlotte made to her so that she wouldn't have the genetic disease but then again who she is is different as well because you know of the experiences she's had in life um so it's the nature nurture all of those things that come together and that yeah is it nature or nurture Mm -hmm. yes you know it's it's not an or it's both. So, um, and her being able to, to come to that was, I loved it. So. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that hundred percent. Well, and two, you know, the, the idea of redemption, I love it plays out. Like you said, it's not just for like Claire and Owen, um, but you know, Dr. Wu getting that and Kayla as well as character. And so I love how, again, I feel like this movie is doing such a great job of, reinforcing the thematic elements mm-hmm. over and over again with different characters in really good ways. Um, and so I, I like that a lot. Um, quite interestingly, our villain is one that brings it full circle because Dotson, who we met in the original Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. who hands the can to Dennis, um, I, I think, you know, is just phenomenal. And so, uh, one, 
Was that super surprising for you to to have that? Um, and how did it end up working for you to kind of again bring this full circle? I have to admit, I did not remember this guy. <laughs> so I found out after the fact that um, he was in the first Jurassic Park as the person that handed the can to Dennis. But uh, I did think that that was cool once I found out that that's what they did um, to furthermore link the two films and all of the films together and to bring somebody into this that is not necessarily representative of just one era of the Jurassic films. You know, yes, they're bringing him back from the first one, but I'm glad that they didn't go with somebody that was only in the Jurassic world previous two films to continue as a villain. No, they're saying we are putting all the pieces together as a a group of six. So I I thought that was really cool. Um, I thought that the actor did a great job. Um, Campbell Scott. And I love that he is embodying exactly what you were mentioning earlier, smoke and mirrors. You know, I even said early on in the movie to my husband, it's really weird how fidgety he is. And he's constantly got a Mm -hmm. stick of gum in his mouth and his hands are moving. You know, you can tell like he's hiding something or Mm -hmm. he's anxious about something, you know, maybe at his core feels what he's doing is wrong, but that he's got to keep going anyway. So, yeah. And you know, it's interesting that you talked about that idea of like, his portrayal and everything in it. And what I kind of saw it as is the person who is so desirous of control. He's basically like a massive child. Like when things don't go his way, he literally threw a temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so he's more, he's somebody who's amassed so much power and so much money that, He's just used to everything going his way. And when that doesn't happen, you know, he just moves on to the next thing. And and it's because he's amoral. He has no, like, he doesn't have any morals or any compulsion mm-hmm. about doing anything as long as it benefits him. And so I thought that was really awesome. And I also enjoyed, like you said, I think he's representative of everything that's kind of been against um the Jurassic system from the beginning, which is people have always been trying to steal this technology um, to use a lot, utilize for their own benefit, which, you know, and um, absolutely he's part of that. So I loved uh, just a hundred percent with you that this was a great choice. And I absolutely love that again, it's connecting everything and it made all of those things mean something, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, even the question of like, what happened to the the can? You know, everybody always wondered. Now we know. It, they even know. brought the can yeah. back. Well, and, and again, the way in which all of these, you know, Star Wars, you know, George Lucas always said things rhyme, right? And a lot of this movie rhymed with a lot of what we'd seen and other parts of the Jurassic series, but to to use that then those rhymes as ways to kind of bring this to a close, mm-hmm. I think worked really really well for me personally. And well, so, and even the same way that Dennis died from the Dilophosaurus, mm-hmm. 
then dodge and dies the same way. Yep. 100% agree with you. Yeah. No, so I it agree. does rhyme. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and it just didn't feel like a cheap knockoff to mm-hmm. to me. Uh, it, it, again, it just felt like one of those places where like, oh, we're we're intentionally referencing ourselves on purpose, you know, but it it's like his actions helped kind of set a course for Dennis to die. Right. Mm-hmm. And then his actions set the course for him to die. Mm-hmm. And so I love that. Well, obviously, this movie is huge with the action and effects uh, of the movie. And how how did that work for you? Did it did it look the way you thought it should? Um, did the action work for you? I mean, we had some major set pieces from, you know, when they're in Malta or the different chases we had in, of course, the park uh, there the Bi- at Biosyn. You know, we used a lot, the most amount of uh, animatronic dinosaurs here in the Jurassic World films. And so... What did you think? I was really amazed at how well they blended the action, the um, effects, and then also the practical pieces, Um, you know, using animatronics and puppets. um, You know, now looking back at it, there are some places where I can clearly tell, okay, that's a puppet. Um, But in the moment in the movie, you can't. Um, I really think that, ILM here did such an awesome job of blending the two together. Um, and then of also them, them being able to keep the momentum going and nothing taking you out of that because of bad effects. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the chase scene in Malta with the motorcycle um, and then, you know, tag teaming with the Raptors that are trying to attack them. Um, it, could have ended up becoming really like shaky cam um, mm-hmm. and possibly had some bad effects in the swinging around. Um, yeah. But it doesn't. Um, and I, I have to give them props, especially to, I really enjoyed the scene where they have the dinosaur following Bryce Dallas Howard after she crashes. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Like talk yeah. about making you hold your breath. Oops, sorry. Talk about making you hold your breath. I think the effects there were paired so perfectly with the expression mm-hmm. on her face and then her like sinking slowly into the pond and trying to get away and going underwater. Um, it, it was gorgeous. What did you think? I thought the movie looked beautiful. Um, one, I thought that Trevor made a great choice in, in choosing the format that they did. Um, because uh, especially like if you see it on IMAX screen, you're filling up the entire screen and you want this movie to feel big and in your face. So uh, I also thought they 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 chose to film on film um, and the, they went with a lot of really naturalistic lighting. I thought the movie had a very naturalistic feel to it. And there were just some scenes that were absolutely gorgeous in that sense. So mm-hmm. when it comes to just the cinematography and everything, and then pairing that with the action and effects that we got, I think were almost perfect. There were only a couple of shots where I thought, Oh, that doesn't look as 
you know, and partly I think it was the very beginning of the movie mm. um, where Owen is riding with the dinosaurs um, on the planes there and they're as they're rounding them up. There are a couple of things in there where it's just like, that's got to be so hard to do with all the movement. Um, but on a whole, I just, I was really impressed by the work in this movie. And then the action, that Malta scene, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine and, and I'll, I'll give him credit. He, he, pointed this out it kind of felt like jurassic park and a jason bourne movie had a baby Mm -hmm. when it came to that scene uh it was fantastic and then everything else i just felt like looked phenomenal when they were uh you know at biasin all the chases with the dinosaurs there uh you know just really really good work and then i enjoyed seeing a lot of those animatronic dinosaurs they're so good with animatronics these days Mm-hmm. it's when you can use it do it you know and they did so i thought that this movie had kind of everything you want from a jurassic film which is tons of great action set pieces happening with the dinosaurs excellent effects and then on top of that i just i thought the movie looked phenomenal um, I thought they did a really good job shooting it and, and the beauty of the scenes they were choosing with the naturalistic lighting really, really worked. So well done on, on them. Um, I uh, Obviously, the music is a huge part of Jurassic Park. I mean, for me, it was the very first CD I ever bought um, when I bought my Aww. CD player back in the day. And, and, and uh, uh I guess that would have been 1993. So, mm-hmm. but of course, Giacchino's back here. And what did you think of his wrap up uh, for the Jurassic series? The number one thing I was looking for is exactly what he did here. And that was calling back to John Williams' original Jurassic Park themes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it had the one that everyone remembers from the very end of that movie way back in 93 um some things especially when like i said alan comes on screen um and then even throwing in some music that's not exactly that but it echoes that a little um is exactly what i think you needed here to also feel like this is all one big whole together um with all six movies and and really beautiful music i mean I, i think that um Giacchino does such a great job in most things I've ever seen with him doing the music. Um, and he mm-hmm. does here too. Yeah. I, I really like the score. I think it's, uh, I mean, he doesn't go overboard too with the references. And I think that's mm-hmm. the thing is he uses the things he created for the Jurassic world series, as well as the, the, the beauty of what John Williams did. And, and I think it's a, it's a good score. I think it really, and and especially in the movie, there's some choices that he made um, with different things where it's just really soft and beautiful. Um, and it just, it, it brings to life the scene in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So I heartily agree with you. I think he does a, a great job uh, here. And I think it's a, it's a worthy um, soundtrack for the rest of the series. And so, um, and it, I think in many ways it just makes you feel like you're watching Jurassic Park uh, mm-hmm. or Jurassic World, um, and I love it. I I, I really do. Um, so, 
Christy, I'm very interested because I feel like we've had mostly just good things to say mm-hmm. um, about Jurassic World Dominion, which is very different than all the critics have. Um, and so, uh, although audiences gave this an A minus uh, as a cinema score, so uh, audiences apparently have enjoyed it, and it's made over almost four hundred million dollars in wow. worldwide in one weekend. So that's insane. Uh, what would you rate Jurassic World Dominion? Well, I will preface this with, I often disagree with whatever the critics say. Yeah, I have so, that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I did hear as well. Uh, you know, when I left this movie, I felt a lot of the things that you mentioned as well of just that it pays homage to what came before it in a nice way. And it's also bringing it into the, the present with having both casts from Jurassic Park and Jurassic World together in one movie and working so well off of each other. Um, there's not much that I would change. I think that um, the only thing that kind of got a little confusing for me and didn't relate as much to the other parts of the story was the locust storyline. Um, but otherwise, you know, I mean, it, it it generally fits in with the science angle and, you know, with them being larger than a locust we would have ever seen before. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So I would give this a four out of five um, flaming locusts because it's got so many beautiful parts going for it and a lot of fun. And then, you know, really, Mm -hmm. I have to say with the action, the first time that the T-Rex pops up, I screamed in the theater. Yeah. So <laughs> they got me. Um, and and then, like I said, especially with paying homage to what came before with the first trilogy, um, I left feeling so good about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I, and what's funny is we were right before we started recording, I was like, I, you know, we hadn't talked at all about what yeah. we felt about the movie together. So we came in blind as to what each other was thinking, but I'm right there with you. I think this is four out of five. Uh, this mm-hmm. is this is four out of five massive piles of dino drum. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is four out of five uh, Velociraptor clone babies uh, because I, I mean, the amount of things that this movie was talking about and I think doing really a good job just trying to make you think about the world we live in and the world we've lived in for the last few years, I think is awesome. Uh, But at the same time, I thought this movie was a very good wrap up to the Jurassic series. And I, I thought that not only was it that, but I thought it was a movie that Michael Crichton himself would have probably really enjoyed. And be, and that is because this movie was so referential to the types of things that he was talking about in the original Jurassic Park book. Mm-hmm. So I'm 100% with you. I, I think this is, I mean, go see it. Go see it on a huge screen, just like you know we said with Top Gun. You won't regret it. It's a great movie with the family as well. And uh, I think that's, that's. I mean, this, this is great stuff. So, well, before we get out of here, Christy, we're going to do what we do pretty much every single week, which is give some recommendations for everyone. So what would you like to recommend everyone this week? 
Well, I feel like with this, and especially um, you and I both loving dinosaurs and Jurassic Park um, so much that I had to do something dinosaur related. So um, actually, this is something that I found out also from my husband, who's fascinated with paleontology. Um, But if you don't know the story of Sue, the largest and most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton found to date, um, I highly recommend checking out the story of Sue. Um, there's actually a documentary out there called Dinosaur 13, um, which is about the sad story of um, the people that originally found Sue. Um, it was named for the woman that found it. And um, in the documentary, they show that after the, these people had gone through this amazing discovery, the government then came back and seized all of the items saying that it was found on federal land and they could no longer take the credit for it. Um, Hmm. So since then, I think that um, possibly things have changed, but um, I would have to go and look back at what the story has been since the documentary, which came out in 2014. But anyway, so yeah, it's a fascinating story. Um, and really cool to see all the pictures of such a complete T-Rex skeleton for the first time. Um, so awesome. check out Dinosaur 13 and the story of Sue. Oh, man, I'm going to have to do that. That's so cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up loving dinosaurs as a kid. I, I mean, I still love dinosaurs. Uh, so uh, that's so neat. Well, I um, went and did something that I had never done before, which is, uh, you know, we I'd recommended the the show the offer uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking about recommendations and it's all about the making of the Godfather. Well, I've never actually read, or I hadn't actually read the Godfather book, the original book by Mario Puzo, and Ooh. so I went and did that, and it's fantastic. Um, it's similar to the movie, but there's a lot of stuff obviously they couldn't add into uh, the film, and it's. It's well worth your time. So I highly recommend checking out Mario Puzo's The Godfather. But Christy, um, you know, we're, we're not here in the 602 Club. And maybe people want to talk to you about some Jurassic World or something else. Where would they find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And then, of course, on Facebook, uh, I often appear over in the Babel Conference. And if you want to check out another show that I do uh, called Sabers and Spells, it is at Sabers and Spells, also on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and we talk about geeky things we don't usually get to cover. We are on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network Skynet, and that is with my friends Amanda and Teresa. But what about you? Well, uh, you could find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. So Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, Vero, any of those type of places. Uh, you can also find me here on the network when I'm not in the 602 Club doing a bunch of other shows. Uh, I've got the Orb, Literary Treks, Warp Five, Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. Uh, we've, the Orb's about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Literary Treks is the books and the comics of Star Trek. Warp Five is about Star Trek Enterprise. Artificial Tango is about Star Trek Picard, and then Saddle Up is all about Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And then when I'm not doing that, uh, I've got a couple of shows over on the Nerd Party Network. One is called Owl Post. That's a completed show. I did that with Drea Kaufman, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, 
Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with John Mills, and I hope you will check it out. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you here. Thank you.